Make full use of your time in the school to learn more knowledge. Try to keep good health by doing more physical exercises and have a clear target. If you keep striving for that, I believe you could finally realize your dream. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here in England, Matthew Russell and Harriet Brettle. Oh yeah, baby. Nishing. Hi, Harriet. <laughs> what an intro. That was a great quote, though. Very um, very inspiring for the kids, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, do you know who Ni Hishang is? I do now. He's a Chinese astronaut, right? Yep. What, are, what are Chinese astronauts called? Taikonauts. Oh, Taikonauts. Okay, well, they're they're cool. actually called something else as well. I'm, I, I, annoyingly, I meant to put it into the notes, but they are called. There's another name for Chinese astronauts. God damn hmm. it. Before the end of the program, I'll I'll remember. <laughs> it will come to you, It'll and you'll be like, me. "Oh yes, Taikonaut." So yeah. Ni is a Taikonaut. Yeah, I think it's a mix of Taikong, which means space. Mm. Yeah, a naught. Hence the name of their new space station. Yeah, it's yes, it's related, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, because, it yeah. all comes together, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I was going to do um, a podcast based around my interview with Brittany Zimmerman, who we've got on today. Oh, uh, and yes. Harriet, you've met Brittany, apparently. I've, I've virtually met Brittany because we were both part of the SSPI 20 under 35 cohort last year. And Brittany was one of the Promise Award winners and did a speech. And I have never heard someone with such energy <laughs> and wild dreams and it was like the epitome of like just this gung-ho like yeah I'm gonna chase down my dreams and make them a reality and it was just like like watching a like a sci-fi character in yeah. real life it was quite funny I got an I got an email from Joe Inman who said you should get Brittany Zimmerman on your show because I think you'll find her entertaining and informative she's very bubbly personality <laughs> Which I think is a is almost like an under understatement of, of the uh, that uh, yeah, it was absolutely awesome doing a, I can't a Zoom wait. interview with her because yeah, really really inspiring. And here's a little tip for the top: if you want to be able to do as much as Brittany, who also builds guitars as well, so she had a bunch of guitars on her wall. She was because I have, you do. I've got guitars on my wall, and then suddenly I, I got I got paraded around the house and shown all these beautiful guitars on, <laughs> that had been wow. built. And um, but yes, if you if you want to find the time to be as productive, don't have a telly in your house. Oh, wow. yeah, there we go. She didn't have a. T that's what that's what I discovered. Think how many hours you've spent on Netflix in the last like year. Mm. Can you imagine what you what you would have achieved if you were instead building guitars? I could have I could have done a PhD if I'd if I'd if I'd cashed in the expanse and a few other TV programs. <laughs> yeah, it's quite depressing when you think about no, it. Isn't no, no, don't don't even talk to me. La la la, not listening. So no. anyway, anyway, I almost called you Brittany then. <laughs> Harriet, um we're gonna talk about uh Changong. We are the, oh. the the latest space station to yeah, go up Shangong, into orbit. I, I believe, yes, yeah. Which 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 is coming together very very quickly. I actually couldn't believe that they they've already got people up there. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Well, they, I mean, they did announce it a few years ago, right? But it's one of those things where you, you, you often hear about space plans and you think, yeah, yeah, give, <laughs> you know, add a few, you know, years onto that timeline. And then, you know, before you know it, it's like, no, we've got Taikonauts on our space station. And yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was only 29th of April, 2021, they launched the Shanhua, I believe it's pronounced, Shanhua, which is Harmony of the Heavens module, the core module for their space station. So like just a few months ago. So only a few months ago, yes, which wow. is which is pretty amazing, isn't it? And it's going to be part of the whole Shangong space station, which is, which is going to be roughly about the same size as the Russian Mir space station. Mm. And actually, nice. it's going to be built fairly... It's, it, I guess the construction is fairly similar because the Russians must have done it with their Soyuz, which is really similar mm-hmm. to the Chinese Shenzhou spacecraft. Yeah, I'm, try, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying my hardest, as you can I'm tell. I'm glad you're it. trying, not me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's really similar. It's really similar to the Soyuz. Do you remember the Changong 1 and the Changong 2? I remember that one of them came down a little while ago, right? Well, Am both, I remembering that well, correctly? Yeah, well, both of them have come down recently. Mm. But w- I think Changong 1, which was their original one that they launched in 2011, mm-hmm. that's the one that you probably remember, which was the 2nd of April 2018, which yep. was uncontrolled. So it was one of those ones, where's it going to come down? Keep your fingers crossed and Keep, hope yeah. for the best kind Which of... Which is uh... a little bit of a Chinese trick, isn't it, to sort of have uncontrolled re-entry. What do you think about uncontrolled re-entry, Harriet? Well, working for a debris removal company, I'm a much bigger fan of controlled re-entry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely am. Do you know what the real coincidence of their uncontrolled entry was? Well, did it land right in the middle of the ocean? It did. It, it, it Really weirdly, it landed not, well, 3,600 kilometres, which is actually not that far away in, in terms of the size of that part of the ocean from Point Nemo. And Point Nemo is where, where they normally crash spacecraft. That is your kind of spacecraft cemetery. Oh, so they almost hit the bingo. They almost hit the bingo by complete and utter chance. Which is that's, weird, isn't that's it? That's pretty lucky, I'd yeah. say. I mean, if I'd if I'd have been the Chinese, I would have said, "Yeah, no, that's what we planned to do all along." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but for some reason, they didn't, which is a bit unusual for them. Yeah, the Changong One stayed up there for a long time. It 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 it, it was occupied for a bit. Mm-hmm. Shenzhou Eight was uncrewed, so that that was the first orbital docking that China had ever done. So that's two thousand and eleven. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, September 2011, Changong 1 was launched. So it stayed up there for a long time, if you think it didn't come down to 2018. And exactly 49 years to the day after Valentina Tereshkova went into space, the first woman in space, they launched Shenzhou 9, which is the fourth crewed Chinese mission, and that took the very first Chinese female astronaut, Lui Yang. 
not to be not to be confused with another Taikonaut that was on the same spacecraft on Shenzhou Nine called Louis Wang. So there was Louis Yang, who was the first female, Louis Wang, and Jing Haipeng, who was the commander. Now G- Jing Haipeng is your is your like proper. He's almost like the Neil Armstrong of Chinese Taikonaut. As a veteran. He's the veteran. The... He's your veteran dude. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, what a nice way to honour the history of human spaceflight. Well, I, I wonder if that was intentional. I hope it was. I imagine it was, right, I, to have... I, I, I don't think it was because I think it was quite delayed. So that it was, they may have delayed it a couple of days or something like that to sort of go, oh, actually, here's something we could do. But I don't think it was ever in the sort of master plan. But hey. Well, lucky coincidence then. Yeah. Uh, and and they f- there was another mission, Shenzhou 10 as well, that took up a um, another female astronaut, Wang Ye, uh, Wang Ye Ping. Wang Ye Ping gave a um, lecture about microgravity to students all across China. Oh, wow. How cool would that be as a kid to... I, I, I never had any of that when I... I don't ever remember any astronaut coming to our school or, well, you know... I would have been too old because, yeah, I'd, I'd have left school by the time Helen Sharman went up. So, But you wouldn't have. Helen Sharman, I suppose, could have gone. In fact, weirdly, I got, yeah. an, I got uh, one of my friends who's a lot younger than me, probably about your age, actually, he did actually send me a picture of him and Helen Sharman when she came to his school. Oh, wow. That he suddenly remembered about. It was like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think old Helen did the, the rounds for a bit. Oh, I'm sure she did. I'm sure the the, um, the UK Space Agency was doing a bit of a, a reminisce over Tim Peake's mission recently, and they were talking about the impact that that had on, you know, school kids and um, around the country. And it, it really does make a difference, doesn't it? Like having that, you know, that real link to it, kind of, you know, being able to see someone who's been to space or look, learn directly from them it's um yeah well it almost gives the news outlets an excuse to talk about it for one like news round and bbc news and and itv news and sky who needs an excuse to talk about space matt well i think well not the interplanetary podcast doesn't need an excuse it's almost like our job (laughs) it's like if we suddenly start talking about non-space which is which is a little oh. bit like Britney, actually. We we do go into carbon capture quite a bit, which which I I think is kind of space, isn't it? Really. Well, you you covered guitar making as well, right? Yeah, that's, and covered a little uh, bit of guitar out. making. I'm not sure that's actually in the interview. I think that was that was this discussion once we'd stopped recording, but it was very it's interesting. A bonus. Yeah, the bonus. Yeah, it was, it was my it was my bonus discussion afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Um, back to Changong Wang. Changong Wang was only supposed to last two years, but they left it up there for that extra period so they could check out all the components and see, you know, test the longevity of it all. Hmm. Hmm. Right, because it wasn't ever meant to be a kind of, um, you know, long-term space module, right? It was always a testing ground for what is now up there with the the actual space station. Exactly. In fact, weirdly, not only that, the, the Shanzhou, which is their cargo spacecraft is based on the Changong 1. So it's not only a testing vehicle for the actual modules, the, you know, the actual space station. Mm. It's it turned into yeah, a testing test bed for their cargo spacecraft as well. 
which is interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that that it was actually the European Space Agency that that was sort of led the uh, the space debris office in Darmstadt, which I'm sure you know well. And I've I've, I've been there myself. Um, uh, they were the people tracking the um, um, the the Changong one as it came back down. But also, like, you know, everyone got involved. The ISRO, JAXA, Roscosmos, they were all there. They were all there trying to, you know, work out what the hell, where the hell this thing was going to come down. So well, uh, everyone's got a vested interest, right? Particularly the countries with a lot of land mass. You kind yeah. of... Uh... Well, yeah. Well, yeah, when, when that long march sort of went over New York, didn't it? <laughs> it was like, that's very... That's part of its trail could have actually... Can you imagine? It would be like the start of like a Bruce Willis movie or something. You wow. know, just like yeah, it'd be, it'd be not aw- great. It would be awful. So after Changong One, they they launched Changong Two, which was very very similar. Again, just a test bed. It went up 2016, came back down 2019. So it wasn't up for that long. In fact, mm. I remember thinking how weird it was that it sort of went up, then a couple of. Uh, Taikonauts went up on Shenzhou 11 mm-hmm. in 2016. That was Jing Haipeng again and Chen Dong. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I do remember this one because we had it on the podcast when they came back down into the into the um, Mongolian desert in a Mongolia. Because um, it's it's there when you because <laughs> it was the, the 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 surprising difference between when a Soyuz lands. Mm-hmm. you know and and it just seems like a bunch of really rough blokes going out to sort of you, you know what they they sort of look pretty rough don't they the the, the ros you know the, the people that go out and, sturdy and get the folk. they look like sturdy folk but it, it all looks so you know a little bit kind of heath robinson the russian version whereas the the way that the chinese did it was very very kind of regimented they're all wearing uniforms and they all look absolutely spectacular as they went and did it and the, there's the you know the, the 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 communist flag and everything so it was all it was very very different i remember thinking god that that looks very different even though it's almost identical you know a capsule in the desert kind of thing it was funny mm-hmm. but um yeah um but yes that station came back in july 2019 not many pu- People really talked about it because it just burned up over the South Pacific Ocean like it was supposed to, and that was it. So do you think that this Changong is called Changong 3? You're going to tell me no. It's got a, a completely different name. No, it, well, it's just called Changong. So they it, were it, the pre-ones, yeah. right? This is, this is the proper thing. So Changong thing. 1, Changong 2, the next one is Changong. It's like the Star Wars movies, isn't it? You oh, know. yeah. <laughs> I guess it is. I guess it is. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, Changong. So now we've got Changong being built, right? Now, do you mm. know the difference between a first-generation, second-generation, and third-generation space station? I don't, but uh, I hope uh, you're going to tell me. <laughs> first-generation space stations are things like the original Salyu and Skylab, which basically mm-hmm. you launch it, you can go up and visit, but the, but they're not designed for resupply, so they don't really oh. have. A, so it's it, it's it's one great one big off. monolithic thing that you stick up in orbit, mm-hmm. use it for a bit, and then it burns burns up and comes back down again, right? 
Second gen generation are things like Salyut 6 and 7. Shangong 1 and 2 were both second generation because you could do resupply to them. Mm -hmm. So you could go up, dock with them because they've got more than one docking port. Right. Uh, third generation is things like Mir, International Space Station, and Shangong itself because, yeah, you 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 launch monolithic bits up and then add bits to it, like modular systems. Oh, so it's kind of like Lego, right? It's like yeah. you've got the core and then you have all these add-on modules that you can put in on the side yeah. and then you build up. Because you've got yeah. multiple docking ports, so you can keep docking things on and you can dock cargo while docking human spaceflight and docking something else and, you know, build it up like that. So it's... It's quite impressive. Now, the, the the big difference between this, as far as I can tell, and the International Space Station, why it can't get as big mm. is because the International Space Station is made from lots of truss that has to be put together basically with lots and lots of flights of something like a space shuttle. You just can't do it in any other way. So, you, you like, the Chinese don't have a space shuttle, but no one does. So, like, building another International Space Station currently would be incredibly difficult. It's interesting you say that because then you, you, you I, I guess it kind of makes sense when you say it out loud, but your your space station and the way you build it is driven by your launch capability, right? Mm. It's driven by what you can get the stuff up there in. And, you know, back in the day in the building of the International Space Station, one of your biggest assets was the space shuttle. So you design a space station that can be built from things that can come up in a shuttle, right? Yeah. And... And then if, okay, well, we don't have that. We've got a different spacecraft now. Well, okay, great. Well, then we're going to use, you know, use the best parts of our our current rocket or whatever it is. And uh, yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it's about fairing size as well, isn't it? I mean, the, the mm. space shuttle loading bay was all about spy satellites. So it was all built for spy satellites that are very similar to Hubble. So obviously Hubble was looked like it fitted in absolutely perfectly and it, all it really is is a spy satellite that's pointing in the in a good direction <laughs> pointing outwards <laughs> actually talking of talking of um talking of hubble really oh. cool thing about the chinese space station is that they might build a thing called the Shen, the heavenly cruiser although when i put Shen into google translate it came out as seeking the sky which sounds like a better translation for a telescope, right? So it's it's going to be like they're going to have like a a, a Hubble-style space telescope that's in co-orbit with the Chinese space station but not actually attached to it. Oh. And every now and then it can sort of come down and dock with the space station, I guess, for repairs and upgrades and things like that. And they reckon that's going to that's going to map 40% of the sky. With its, with its much, it's got a three hundred times larger field of view, but similar kind of resolution to Hubble. In other words, you know, this is many generations of of um, camera sensor down the line than Hubble is. Wow! So That's... that that could be like you know, we it might be one of the most amazing things because we, we we're not really going to have a really good imager in the in in space to replace Hubble because like. James well, Webb James is infrared, is right? Infrared, so yeah. So that would be amazing, but you won't get all those pretty pictures like you did from Hubble. 
Mm. You get different maybe, ones, though. Yeah, maybe from the Xing Shen we will. Well, maybe this is perfect timing, Matt, because when you brought a Pubble, I thought you were going to talk about the uh, the little computer glitch that has uh, knocked it out of operation at the moment. They're oh, is it, is it out? Yeah, oh, it's been no. out of commission for like the last week or so, I think. Trying to, um, they're trying to turn on its backup computer, um, but there's a bit of a software glitch. So, uh, uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, do you know, without the space shuttle as well, we can't go and fetch it to put it in a museum. It's just, oh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Can you yeah, imagine? If anything deserves to go in a museum, I think it's the Hubble Space Telescope. Because like, I would have really liked um, Sputnik. Yeah, Sputnik yeah. would be pretty good, but that has now burnt up. That's definitely it, gone. It? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Sputnik would have been good. But there's a, there's a few out there, aren't there? There's the, there's the, the original American satellites. But yeah, was it Vanguard? Was yeah. that one of the first ones? The, yeah, they're, they're all out there. And because there's, who's the, there's a, who's the space archaeologist woman? I was just about to say you should have Alice Gorman. That's it, Alice the Gorman. The space yeah. archaeologist. On have you spoken to her on the podcast? No, no. I, I keep meaning to. I keep meaning to ask her on. Actually, I have to say because oh, it be is really, fab. it is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. like that. That whole idea of it's it's not really space debris, but uh, <laughs> a bit like visiting the Taj Mahal and saying, you know. Well, it's. I think it's really interesting because it assigns a value to these, you know, historical objects, right? So, mm. um, yeah, there's there's definitely a history there, isn't there, in terms of, yeah, these, well, these objects in space. Yeah, it's a bit like the in- interview with Dave Con Cannon of fetching the Apollo engines off the off the off the ocean floor because it's like, you know, these things. You know, that's the engine that took Neil Armstrong to the moon. Mm-hmm. Like it's that's. I mean, so. Yeah, it's it's odd, but it's. I also get into Philip K. Dick territory here, where it's like the historiosity of 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 items, and is it really worth it? I don't know. What uh, what is historiosity? Well, That's a it, new no, word. there's there's a there's a scene in in Man in the High Castle where he's got two, I think it's two cigarette lighters, and one used to belong to Billy the Kid, and one didn't, <laughs> and it's like one's worth a million pounds, and one's worth five dollars. But what's the actual difference? There's none. Well, it's kind of a philosophical question there, isn't it? It's like, why would you buy the original Mona Lisa when you could get a very, very good, indistinguishable copy or replica, right? Yeah. Well, particularly if you had a 3D printer that could print down to a, you know, you could actually have an exact copy of it, couldn't you? You could literally Down to the, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's what music's become, of course, because of, you know, digital downloads and digital copying yeah but you know we've definitely uh we've definitely changed subject from um, <laughs> <laughs> we've gone into those non-space subjects matt that we said we were going to avoid like quick let's go oh, back yeah, to ac- space yeah we've accidentally gone into intellectual property <laughs> <laughs> no, not often that you wander into that area of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not every day. No, it isn't every day. So, quick one because we're, we're almost we're almost really uh, we, we can almost get to Britney's interview actually. But before we get there, we should we should talk about the Chanhua Core. So that's mm-hmm. the one. That's the bit that was launched on the 29th of April. So that whole core has got everything in. It's got like living quarters, propulsion, life support. It's quite big and quite. 
quite comprehensive. And I saw a YouTube video from some Chinese news agency of the astronauts living up there and and washing and going on their exercise bicycles and stuff like that. So it's pretty oh, wow. impressive. And I think so. The whole the whole thing when it's put together will be about the size of a uh, not a jumbo jet, but the kind of slightly smaller large passenger planes when the whole thing's put together. So, you know, that that's the kind of size that we're talking about. It's pretty impressive in it to get that into low earth orbit. Oh, it's just amazing. It it really is amazing, right? Like uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's got a Canadian style, you know, canadarm attached to it as well, which actually can crawl across the structure. So it it can it can detach. It can attach itself to one bit and then detach the back end and move around like that, like a sort of crawling, crawling around the whole wow. structure. So that that's pretty impressive. Um, and apparently that's up there. I couldn't really confirm that that was part of the uh, Chanhua um, module, but I think it is. I think it went up with that, but I couldn't confirm that. But there's two other modules that go up with it. The the Wenqian and the and the Mengqian modules, mm-hmm. which are going to be, you know, sort of attach. I think in a sort of T shape to this to the to the ori- to the original Chanwu module. See, see, see how my pronunciation keeps changing every every time I try it. I am not in a place to judge, man. So <laughs> now here's an interesting one that someone pointed out in the in the in the in the Spodgat Patreon, is it's going to have ion propulsion, which I don't think the ISS has. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, so part of its station keeping will be four Hall Effect thrusters. That's really interesting because they can be quite dangerous, can't they, ion thrusters, because they're sort of pushing out particles at very, very high speed. So there's some kind of magnetic field and ceramic shield that, that keeps them safe. According to the Chinese, they've been operating now for 8,000 hours without a glitch. So that's pretty good. Some good testing, yeah. Well, that's interesting because, like, there's a lot of, um, uh, yeah, kind of electric propulsion developments in the satellite industry as well, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to shrink it down to to get them on CubeSats and the like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I got really into that when we were doing our CubeSat episode, which we still haven't – I still haven't finished that series of – of episodes but Mm. one of the things yeah those small modular ion thrusters are really interesting they're so Mm -hmm. geekily cool it's unreal (laughs) and yeah there seems to be a sort of proliferation of them it's almost like the arduino of 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 propulsion systems right yeah it's uh it's exciting times there's lots uh well yeah there's there's lots going on in the space world that's for sure now, here's, here's the other thing, is the international co- uh, collaboration with Tiangong is interesting as well. This is really cool, actually, right? Because it's really nice, you know, it, obviously it's a, you know, Chinese space agent is being led by the Chinese uh, National Space Administration. But like you say, you know, there, there is international cooperation there and there's a lot of a lot of countries that are looking to host experiments from the Chinese space station, right? Um I'm looking at Belgium, France, Germany, India, Peru, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Kenya, Japan. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, but that's what really a great cool, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I, because because China, China have been sort of locked out of the International Space Station because of that American directive that they can't 
deal with the Chinese. I noticed that the British are missing from that list, so presumably the British aren't or don't want to get involved. I don't know. It's hard to tell, isn't it? But we actually had an interview with Matthias Maurer, who's going up on SpaceX's Crew 3 mission, and he and Samantha Cristoforetti have already been training with the Chinese so it's highly likely that Matthias Maurer might be one of the one of the Europeans uh, and Samantha Cristoforetti might actually go up onto Chiangong. I think that's actually a, a real possibility. Uh, so that that's something to look forward to. That'd be really cool, wouldn't it? That would be amazing, yeah, to see the yeah really bring that international cooperation back to. Um, well, to a different part of, of human space exploration, right? Because yeah. you think about the International Space Station being the, the, the be-all and end-all, but to know that there's other opportunities to, to go into orbit and, and live in space is Well, is yeah, exciting. I mean, particularly for someone like Matthias, who, Matthias, Matthias, I think it's Matthias. I, can, I always get it the wrong way around. I, I keep wanting to say one Just or the say other. Just say it both Matthias, ways. <laughs> what's really good about it, and it, it, the worst thing is it's just the German version of my name. That's the worst. <laughs> Is that Matthias? He is, you know, he's worked really hard to get a space flight. Mm. He's my age, and suddenly he's he might have the chance to go to the International Space Station. Well, he is going to the International mm. Space Station. He might go to the Chinese Space Station. He might go to the lunar outpost. He might even end up going to the moon. So it's an exciting time to be a European astronaut. It's and there's going to be a new cohort soon, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah. yeah, even and that's probably even more likely to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, which is actually more exciting than the Americans because the Americans won't get the chance to go on the Chinese space station, unless that's of course true. they change the rules and go. Actually, no. Is it all right if we come on now? <laughs> you can come on ours if we can come on yours. So yeah, that's that's really cool, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it is. It's exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, so just so you know what's coming up on that Changong, it's um, we've got the Shenzhou 12, which is already gone and 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 launched. Then there'll be a cargo vehicle ne- uh, in September, another Shenzhou um, it, 13 on October the tw- on in October. So that's th- that will be t- two or three astronauts replacing the ones that are up there now, who are doing a sort of three month tour of duty. Then next year we've got more cargo, more, more, um, more another Shenzhou fourteen perhaps, and then that's the when that's when Wenqian and Mongqian will be launched in twenty twenty two June and September to sort of finish off the space station. So it's going to be so. I I don't know when the um, I don't know when the telescope will launch, but I'm assuming that's quite a little bit later on mm-hmm. like 23 24 or something like that so but yeah that's that's it's it's the chinese are, are really kind of smashing it aren't they <laughs> at the moment and um and and they even announced this week that they want to put the first human on mars in 2033 that's bold but i've heard <laughs> bolder so <laughs> well i mean i i'd be amazed if they put the first human on the moon by 2030 i think that's about right but mm. to put a to put someone three years later on mars doesn't seem that feasible 
Whoever said space exploration plans need to be feasible, Matt? That's no, never I, stopped anyone I, before. <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing, particularly after last week's discussion, is that nuclear propulsion is is what they're talking about as well for this. Oh, wow. So I think, you know, nuclear propulsion is going to be the big thing, I think, over the next sort of 10 years, because that that really does seem like the only way to get to Mars. Without having to wait six months of just... Oh, my God. Yeah, six months travel time does not really appeal. And 10 SLS launches to get your fuel up there as well. It's going to be a bit expensive. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you want to have a listen to uh, my crazy interview with Brittany? Let's do it. Yeah. Not, not Brittany, the one that's in on. Well, I suppose if you're on space Twitter, you might see Brittany more, but but not not the Brittany that seems to be completely absorbing the news at the moment. But uh, the the, the other Brittany the, the that other should Brittany. be. Yeah, <laughs> the other Brittany that should be exactly. Yeah. So a cute the interplanetary podcast putting the ace. Back into space. I'm joined on the podcast by a really, really interesting space person. I well, 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 we'll, we'll find out. But uh, welcome to the show, Brittany. Brittany Zimmerman. Welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Very happy to be here. I do identify as space person, so that's good. <laughs> You're on mainly because I was prompted by a listener called Joe Inman, and uh, he did point out you had a very bubbly, very bubbly personality, and that has come through almost instantaneously, so that, that's great. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm not short in the optimism department at all excellent and and this is a nice international call from tucson to north devon so geologically interesting places both of them so that's quite cool um well okay i guess the best place to start is tell me about your life Brittany. how did you how did you what what was your earliest thoughts about space and and engineering and all those kind of things so yeah tell us your journey yeah so Gosh, earliest. Gosh. Oof. I must have been really, really young. I actually had imagined when I was very, very young that I owned an exoplanet that was all of my own. I named it Frump. So probably needed some help in the naming department back then. But I was quite young. Um, And I spent a lot of time outside looking up. Um, And I don't think that the engineering and the space really started to collide with one another until a lot later in life. And honestly, I I, I thought I was going to be a nuclear engineer originally. Um, But to be a good nuclear engineer, you really had to join the U.S. Navy. And and I I looked through that approach and I had a friend who, who took that road and he was about four or five years older than me. And he came back and said, I'm going to tell you a lot about this and then I'll let you decide if you want to do this or not. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very and, uh, positive then, what he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had really great positive experience and I made the decision to not and I made a little bit of a, of a shift there, a lateral shift and decided to go into mechanical and aerospace engineering and I was probably a bit idealistic back then about what that meant uh, and where that was going to lead. And I had the best ideas and I believed that I was going to become a technical genius at something. And my creative left and right brain, were going to just mash into this glorious (laughs) life of me creating things that helped humanity as a wild, innovative human. And 
My first job out of my undergraduate program, though, ended up being a systems avionics engineer. So I was doing integration of, of some cockpit platforms. That was fine and dandy. Um, but I remember us having a conversation about making in a very, very expensive change uh, on an aircraft to accommodate a very, very rich man. And I knew that it was going to have massive implications on a lot of the things that we were doing. And we decided to make that change anyways. And I remember going home thinking, it's been three freaking years. What am I doing with this, you know, with my chance, right? Like I've got one of these and this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I wanted to do. So I started looking into a lot of different stuff. I started looking into research I could do outside of work. I looked at career changes. Um, I was looking at going back to school. I had all these ideas. I had a really strong advocate um, uh, who was one of my professors uh, through my undergraduates program who I had stayed in contact with at that time. And through a lot of decisions, uh, a lot of contacts, a lot of extra research I was doing on the side, we made the decision uh, that I was going to accept a full ride to go back to school um, to the University of North Dakota. Uh, They have a space studies program there, which is phenomenal. It was uh, partly founded by Buzz Aldrin, so he's very tied into a lot of the stuff that's going on there, but it's very breathy. But the deal was, um, you know, I had to take this uh, GRA, I had to be a GRA uh, and develop a greenhouse module for an inflatable lunar Martian habitat. And that was really how I was going to, you know, pay my way through through this program. And they did not have to twist my arm too hard <laughs> to, to have me agree to this. Um, so I moved all the way up to North Dakota. It was freezing cold when I moved there, Matthew. I think it was like negative 24 degrees oh when I was God. moving stuff out of my car into my apartment. I was like, what have I decided to do? I've lost it. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been that cold. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so cold. And um, but the facilities uh, and the professors and everybody that were there were just so outrageously phenomenal that I couldn't not do it. And it ended up being fantastic. I mean, I was all into this space thing. And any reservations that I had had earlier about making the wrong decision in becoming an engineer were completely alleviated. And I was respirited to the core. Um, I was um, leading a group of awesome people in our NASA rocketry challenge. Uh, So getting to go down to Huntsville and blow some stuff up was always really cool. Uh, I was part of our high altitude ballooning committee um, where I got to be a visiting science teacher in a lot of the different schools nearby. So I'd get to, you know, teach a class for a week or two where we would design a payload, send it up to space, bring it back, do some data analysis, you know, write something up about it. So that was just, oh, it was, fulfilling. It was really fulfilling. And then I was also doing a lot of work in uh, Pablo de Leon's uh, spacesuit lab. So that was a lot of fun. And I got selected to be um, one of the analog astronauts in our very first ever 
um, all female crew. So that was very exciting for me. Um, and I got to go on this analog mission with two extraordinary other female analog astronauts and had a great time. How long did that, how long was your, how long was your analog mission? Oh, it was pretty, I think it was two weeks. That one was two weeks. Ooh, yeah, yeah. 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 It was a, it was a really good time. And it was kind of funny, I think, cause they, they prep us. There's like a lot of psychological stuff. They're like, when you're in a really small spot with people, you don't know that well, you know, for long periods of time, you kind of get at each other and just know that that's normal. I think at the end of that, we made, we were best friends and we could have lived in there a lot longer together before things started falling apart. I feel like we could have been in there at least a few months before we were angry about something. <laughs> but yeah, it was wonderful. I was doing a bioregenerative research in there. One of the other crew members was really looking into like circadian rhythm uh, type stuff, like what happens when you don't know what time it is or have access to, to daylight, right? Sort of stuff, sort of these health indicators. So we had a lot of cool stuff going on uh, where they were doing some psychological studies on us while we were in this isolation. And yeah, I think anybody could make it two weeks. So. Okay. <laughs> in the case where you know that if something catastrophic happens, you're still on Earth, right? That's the yeah. thing about anal analog habitats where you don't really have that luxury when you're in space. You're in a spacecraft. There's like two inches between you and certain death. Yeah, I, will, I have to say, because <laughs> we, we've interviewed quite a few analogs, uh, you know, people from, you know, Mars 500 and things like that. And, and, and that's the point I always raise is, but how do you ever, how do you, you know, have an analog of, oh, by the way, if things go pear-shaped, you're almost certainly going to die. You don't, and that must add an extra pressure that's never truly there, is it? In 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 any analog yeah, that you do, absolutely. And we've put a lot of time and effort as an industry into looking at sort of the psychological side of this. At some point, we just have to accept that we're humans. We're going to fight with each other. There are psychological things we're not going to be able to get around, and we have to move forward regardless of that being the case, right? But I think that analog facilities do something that's really wonderful for us too. There's a ton of research that we can get that's really important here on earth that we don't want to get while we're actually doing the real thing, you know, on, a, on another celestial body. So let's say you have some sort of catastrophic event where one of your seal or something happens to your airlock. There should be protocols that are put in place, depending on how many crew there are, you know, exactly what's going on. How do you take care of these emergency style situations? I want to know how long it takes to get through those protocols um, and how long I have before the air is evacuated, you yeah. know, from my facility. And I would like to run through those tests where there's actually air I can <laughs> breathe when we fail, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So there's lots of information we can get for running through a lot of this stuff here on Earth. So it's massively, massively beneficial. But I think we try to pull some information out of these that aren't quite analogous. And I think a lot of that psychological stuff it is part of that. I'm sure there are many psychological lessons to learn about isolation, you know, about being uh, away from your loved ones for long periods of time, being with people in really small spaces. But at the same time, uh, we don't, we're never going to act exactly the same because 
we can leave. (laughs) (laughs) We have that. I know that, you know, in a weird storm, if the roof blows off, I'm going to survive because I can breathe the air. I'm just pretending like I can't breathe the air. I know that I can breathe the air outside. (laughs) So there is that. However, you know, there are some really cool facilities, you know, like you can have facilities on the ocean floor where you can't go outside without being suited up, things along those lines. I think that provide more of that, you know, um, psychological fear associated with it. There are actual repercussions for not taking the correct uh, steps, right? Um, So I I think there's lessons to be learned and we should always learn as much as we can before we go, but um, you'll never know everything and you'll always have to take people who can think on their feet. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I was in this, in uh, one of my missions and um, one of the other crew members said, I was really struggling at that time because I had already had a job that I, I wasn't you know, that didn't sit quite right with me. And I didn't want to make that mistake ever again. Like I knew what an impact it had on my life. So I really wanted to go somewhere that did these hybrid, hybrid solutions for space travel. So it was bioregenerative life support systems uh, paired with physiochemical life support systems. So it, it was that hybrid solution that I was really focused on. And, and by a crewmate, uh, her name was Poonam. She said, you know, there's this company you should check out. I think they're doing hybrid stuff. You should take a look. And and I was really interested in that. I, I took a look when we got out and I thought, yeah, you know, this seems like they're doing some stuff that's right up my alley. So I looked for job openings. They had, I think they had one job opening at the time and it was for like a quality assurance person, which is so far away from what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I submitted, they had, I don't know if they had like the contact information for somebody, or I don't know if there was like a general put information here or what it was, but I submitted my resume and explained what I wanted to do. Like, here's the job that I would want, right? <laughs> it doesn't exist there, but if it ever comes up, this is my resume. Here are my qualifications. And I was down. Um, I got selected as like one of the future leaders. And they sent me down to a conference, the IAC conference down in Guadalajara that year. And I was presenting some of my research. And I got a call and they said, hey, we want to bring you in. And so all in all, they ended up uh, they ended up having a position that um I fit into, you know, I, think, I don't know if I wrote that job description or if it was <laughs> coincidental, but something along that line, something happened fortuitously for me. And then, um, I, re- I really thought I was going to be in their Denver location though, but they said, no, we need, the arrangement is Tucson, Arizona. And I remember landing here and just being like, what? Who would move to a place like this? <laughs> this is this Mars? Is this a, is this a trap? Okay. <laughs> but really, it has grown on me a lot since I've been here. So um, as you travel and as you as you get more acquainted, uh, really, it was just the lack of water that had me startled. Like I grew up, you know, you could if you trip, you're falling into a lake, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Wisconsin, so that's really what that was for me. So, um, so it was, it was a major cultural shift in that sense, but there's so much beauty here too. 
you know, the Sonoran Desert has so much to offer us. And I, I'm really glad that I've gotten the opportunity to, to meet the Sonoran Desert at this level. So it's it's been wonderful. But yeah, I honestly, Matthew, I freaking loved what I was doing. I mean, I was designing, you know, life support systems for aircraft, I mean, for spacecraft. And I was getting to do a lot of really cool and innovative stuff. And oh, gosh. I started um, helping out one of the more the, one of the senior engineers on proposals. That's what that's how I think how sort of the innovative track really started for me. And I was coming up with ideas, and he was a huge advocate for me. You know, and he was like, "Brady, you have ideas. Like, you should you should be writing your own proposals. You know, like I'd, I'd be happy to help you in some of these efforts." And and so I started looking at these solicitations. I started looking at stuff. Um, I looked at some, I started pulling together proposals. Some of them were brand new for phase one. Some of them were phase two style proposals. Um, but yeah, I really came up with some stuff and I was really excited about a lot of our different programs. But at the time, our, our, the chief engineer thought that maybe I was a little too junior in my career to be taken seriously as a principal investigator by NASA, you know, it's typically uh, done by people who are, who are much, yeah, who, who've been in the industry a lot longer. And I, I think at that point in time, maybe, gosh, I don't know, I had five or six years under my belt. Well, and that, well, that was about it. How, how old were you at this point, by the way? <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, mid-20s. Wow. I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I sat as deputy for a couple of these things. I started helping with proposals and it was really exciting because all of the proposals I was helping work on, helping work on or was taking the lead on were getting selected. So it was really exciting because like I had this great track record in terms of proposals or I had a hundred percent proposal selection for a long period of time. And did you have a favorite from that time? I really love this program, uh, maybe because I was challenged so much by this specific one. So I was brought on to um, a DOD, actually, program first is how this led to. And I was asked to do mathematical modeling, some parametric that could parametrically evaluate this very, very, very complex system. And I remember meeting the the super badass part of my engineer who was leading this, and I was I was intimidated at that point in time, and and he asked me to do stuff that I thought was impossible. <laughs> and I remember sitting down, and I had never worked with him before, and I just thought, oh my god, I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> he says, how the heck am I going to pull this off? You know, so. He's asking me to do stuff I have never really done a lot of before. So, I mean, I started from the ground floor on this thing. And I was like, okay, here are some, here's a ton of assumptions. I'm going to build like every assumption I can think of into this model and make it really easy on myself. So I really just started building this um, step by step. And I must have drove this man nuts with the number of questions I asked him. I mean, I was reading textbooks that I hadn't opened since I was in my undergraduates program. I was finding new textbooks. I was like, okay, how am I going to figure this out? And I really started building this up. And then I was like, okay, I made the assumption, you know, I made linear assumptions. Okay. Now let's build in the nonlinearities, you know, and just started building this thing up. And I, I remember so clearly a meeting with the engineer at that point in time. I was scared to death because I was about to like present all of the work that I had done to him. And he said, 
Brittany, did this take you a month to do? And my heart sunk. I was like, it was my first time ever doing it. Like, I'm going to get so much faster at this. And he was like, no, it's phenomenal. And from that point in time, I think that was the beginning of a really, A, a really cool program that developed into way more stuff, but B, a relationship with a co-inventor. Uh, this individual ended up being a colleague that we just thought so differently. And we had such different backgrounds that when one of us would come up with something, there was this supplementary and, and, and synergistic way that we could innovate together. And it was beautiful. I mean, I don't even know how many patents we generated together or how many ideas we've come up with, <laughs> but it, it was really, really wonderful. And um, and that specific, that specific program isn't, I didn't propose that one, right? That one, yeah. I was just an engineer on, but it got me thinking. And later we, we started working through, um, a couple of different modifications to some technologies, like how could we change this? And that program was over, it's completely done. And then solicitations came out for something completely unrelated, but we just thought, wait a minute, what if we kind of turn this thing inside out and do something pretty innovative with it? I think, I think we could invent something that could, could solve a different problem based on the type of mathematical modeling that we had done for that earlier program, right? Completely different technology, but it got the wheels turning in the right direction. And I think that was one of the most important lessons in my career is that technology built for one thing can be completely torn apart, but the principles used to generate that technology could be so beautifully stitched together in a different way to solve massively different and more complex problems. And so we started a program at that point in time uh, that uh, developed a, a condensate separator, a two-phase separator for microgravity conditions. And I was so proud of the work that we did that came out of that. We made it through both phase one and, and phase two funding uh, with NASA for that. And I remember when we went into testing the first time, I part of this was making water move in the opposite direction of gravity. And, and if you think of... I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about this actually. So I'm not going to go into the physics of it just in case. <laughs> so, so let's just say a part of my job was making water move in opposite of gravity, just to ensure that it would work in microgravity. Right. And I remember it was like three o'clock in the morning and, and me and my colleague are in a lab and we turn all this stuff on. We've got everything running and maybe it's mad scientist style. We pour a bunch of water into the system and something's supposed to happen. And we're like, nothing happens. It's like three o'clock in the morning. We're like, Oh man. <laughs> it's all wrong. It <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I'm like super bummed and Thomas looks at me and he's like, and I was like, Thomas, where's the water? And he's like, well, where did you design it to go? And I had like a, like a, I had a tool with me. It was like a, a, a needle nose plier at the time. And I used the needle nose plier to point where I had intended the water to go and this massive spray of all of the water from me 
touching, right? It was rotating. The, ro- the, the water was rotating, but it had almost be- it had become basically invisible and like spread up against the wall. So I didn't know what had happened to it. And I was like, it's supposed to be right here. And I stuck this in there and this just this spray of water came out and we were just elated. I mean, we were just the happiest humans. And it was done. I was addicted to innovation at that point in time. Um, we innovated technologies in, like I said, those two phase separators or rotating machinery for microgravity conditions, uh, UV uh, sanitization uh, technologies, uh, shape memory alloys, uh, radiation technologies, waste management systems, water reclamation technologies. Just if it kept people in live, I, I just wanted to be a part of it. Right. And Probably my favorite though is the gross part. I don't. <laughs> I hope everybody's eaten. Am I allowed? <laughs> am I allowed to? <laughs> you can be as gross as you like. Yeah, one of my favorites um, was certainly a, a technology I called stool, um, and that was the first. That was the very first program that came up. Um, I had innovated. I came up with a bunch of ideas, pulled the proposal together. And, oh, I was still well, I was well under 30 at that point in time still. And um, I really was pushing to be the principal investigator for this proposal, right? I'd written so many proposals. I had done the job for so long. Like, I just wanted this to happen. And uh, finally, I... uh, I put myself in as the the PI and got that and submitted it and found out a few months later that I was selected as our youngest principal and NASA principal investigator ever. So that was Whoa. huge for me. It was so exciting. Oh wow! Yeah. So the youngest principal principal investigator for NASA, like as yeah. Oh, in all of NASA, I'm not sure. Specific to my organization, yes. I've got yeah. I mean, that, mind. But I bet I'm in contention. Like, I, if anybody knows how to find that information, I would love to find that out because I might be. Yeah, it's got to be better than the silver YouTube button or something like that. You've got to have it on your a plaque on your wall. I mean, yeah, sort of, that would be cool. Like, I'm not sure who pays attention to those sorts of things there, but maybe the SDI, maybe I'll give them a call yeah, and be well, like, hi. It's, it's, it's always good for because, Zoom calls. Yeah, for sure. I, I talked to my core um, about it, right? The person who is like, is on the NASA side is the person I do all of, all of the, the work back and forth with. Um, and yeah, the core was like, yeah, for sure. Like, you're the youngest one I, I've ever worked with by a long shot. Like, I was like, is there any way for us to look that up? Because that would be super cool, Matthew. I would like to know. If it's true, I'm making a plaque. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a copy. <laughs> we'll just send a picture. I'll, I'll tweet it a million times. Okay, yeah, okay. Hey. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was huge in my career, though. I, I was so excited about it. I mean... I think I was downstairs talking to um, to the receptionist and the CEO came and he was like, did you check your email in the last three minutes? And I was like, Noah, you know, I've been down here talking to the receptionist about something. And and he said, well, and he gave me the newest there. And I must I think I fell. I think I collapsed. Just just so happy. I was just so excited. Um, And that was it was so wonderful for me because. I really got the opportunity to learn how to, you know, in, in the, in my career, I really got to learn how to take, like, 
technology from material zero and mature that all the way into, you know, tested fabrication, manufacturing, and integrating that with, you know, other systems in, in this case, well, in, in a couple of the cases, the International Space Station. So it was really, really exciting to learn all of those. And I don't know if it happened in perfect chronological order, but it all happened. <laughs> and that technology was the stool technology. And that it's kind of gross. I named the program stool. <laughs> we know where it's going. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And that's the separation technology for on-orbit liquids and excrement. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> I loved naming the programs. It's part of my, that's part of my favorite part of, uh, of writing the proposals, getting to name what the programs were going to be called. Um but yeah, this technology, um, I can't talk too much about how it operates right now. It's still in development with NASA. So um, it, but at a high level, we've published enough information that I can say we ut- we pull the water um, out of the human feces, uh, you know, to make that potable again so that, so that uh, astronauts can drink <laughs> the water that comes from their feces and then utilize the dried biomass that's left over as a filler in an additive manufacturing process. And that will reduce the weight of a lot of things that you need to launch, right? Which is a big part of what's important in the space industry, a lot of mass and volume concerns. So imagine now that you don't have to launch all of your onboard replaceable units as the lifetime of stuff starts to expire, you are producing the materials so you on, need. So let me get this straight. <laughs> the, I, thought the, I thought the cool bit about this was that you were getting astronauts to drink the water from their own poo. But, the, <laughs> but what you're actually doing is also like using them in in essentially poo 3D printers. Yeah, that's correct. Whoa. Poo 3D printers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's brilliant. So what kind of thing what kind of things can you make from that biomass, dry biomass? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of work still being developed in in that realm, but um, a lot of things are are conceptualized and we did a lot of our testing in terms of like the the mechanical properties and structural abilities, you know, of, of different formulations utilizing uh, this biomass. Um, but really a lot of things, first of all, um, it depends on whether you're in a habitat, right? So are you um, looking at surface operations style stuff or are you on the spacecraft still? Like, are you in, in duration, right? Or long duration space flight. It, it, it matters. In space flight, um, a lot of things you can do. <laughs> we made jokes about printing a, a screwdrivers or something and then being like, oh, my hands are full. Just like stick it in your mouth. But no, it, it would it would be biologically inactive. Then, yeah. So it wouldn't be an issue. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, replacement parts for most things that you can think of. Um, we also actually thought about building um, like brick style um, components out of it so that you could begin shielding yourself from radiation using it, right? Something like removing water from the system, which is, which helps out of the wall and replacing that, you know, with urine bags or fecal bags or bricks that we could build out of these things to help with some of that radiation protection. Uh, same thing with being, um, in the habitat, you could actually utilize these to build bricks, to build up 
your physical habitat. And I mean, that's not too different of a concept than what they do with like Adobe style homes. Mm. So it's, it's been looked at before, you know, it's not, it is. We've been using feces for a long time to build yeah. our houses. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's almost back to square one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, like and it'll be our first time on these planets, so it really is square one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that, that's really cool. I mean that that is just insanely cool. So is that is is that unit up on the ISS now? No, that is still in production right now with NASA. Right. So, so, so is there, there's a, there, I think they have about another year. Um, another year of uh, development. So we do have a um, a brine processor up there, though, that is integrated. So it does a similar thing, uh, but it processes the urine. Yeah. So that was developed first. Um, and, yeah, it takes the urine from the people on the International Space Station currently. I think it launched a couple months ago, actually. So, yep, it's up there and integrated. Oh, oh so it's really exciting. Uh, yeah, that's super exciting. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a brilliant day, isn't it, when you when when one of the astronauts comes back down and they'll be able to thank you that you allowed them to drink the water from their own poo. It's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that, Brittany, they're going to say. Yeah, yeah it's anytime. I got you. <laughs> I quite like the idea of 3D printing a mug to hold the water. Yeah. So go. it's like the whole thing, but it's just slightly transformed. Yeah, so yeah I like that a lot. <laughs> I think you'll have to do some convincing of other individuals for that. But <laughs> they're like, no utensils, no plates, like no anything you put into your mouth, please. <laughs> just for the psychological aspect of it, really. <laughs> oh, man, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So what, what next? Because you're, you're involved... I mean, I, I really liked one of your LinkedIn quotes about like trying to leave the planet in a better state than you found it and being part of that process. So uh, yeah. the, the one sort of big thing that I've seen on your on your profile is this is the X Prize, the, the gigaton rem carbon removal. So tell yeah. us a little bit about your involvement with that. Yeah. So I think I've been struggling with a, a bit of an existential crisis probably since 2019 or so. Um, as you can imagine, I'm working on technologies that can take human feces and urine and, and make that drinkable again. Also, in terms of air revitalization, we do a lot of scrubbing of CO2 because as astronauts exhale, you have a buildup of CO2 um, and you have to do something to get rid of that from the system. We're particularly sensitive to, to large CO2 partial pressures. Um so in development, you know, and thought of some of this stuff, you can't help, I think as a human, I can't help but feel this humanitarian obligation to take knowledge of how to do a lot of these things and make it accessible to the 100% of humanity that still lives here. And I love space travel. I love designing stuff for space applications. And I will never stop doing that. But what I can't look past is the development of those technologies and then not getting these sorts of technologies to Flint, Michigan, Africa, Middle East. I mean, there's just such large populations of people who have excess of a lot of waste and don't have access to clean water. So it was something that I, I just felt I had to do. Um, and uh, yeah, in 2020, I left uh, and started uh, this 
I'm hoping the symbiosis between celestial sustainability and terrestrial sustainability, because for me, it it does fit together. It's human, right? It's human for us to want to travel and explore the universe, but it's also human for us. Earth is in space. It's part of the space community as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the spaceship Earth. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And so I, it's just so important that we don't leave Earth in space travel and make it okay. Like, I don't want to give the social license to screw up the Earth because we have the belief that we can terraform another planet or we can just get out of here, right? I don't think that's the right approach. We need to make sure that we're taking care of both. Humans can live in a sustainable fashion. I I believe that to my core. It's just taking us a while to figure out how to do that. And one of the things I think about often is, you know, we were in the Stone Age once and in the stone, the stone age did not end. I, and I read this in one of my favorite carbon capture books that I just started reading, which is really cool. But they were expressing, right, how the stone age did not come to an end because we ran out of stone. And the same thing is going to be true with the fossil fuel era. We're not going to end our fossil fuel era because we've run out of fossil fuels. And when the stone age ended, we didn't stop using stones. We still use stones. I have stones at my house right now, right? We didn't stop using stones. And even when we move into this renewable energy space, that doesn't mean that fossil fuels are going away. We just keep them for very selective applications that are really important for us to focus on, right? And we figure out how to utilize them in a way that isn't devastating to us because we have to get away from this idea that we have a right to all of the things on earth. We have, you know, we haven't inherited the earth, you know, we've, we've borrowed it from our children and our children's children and their children and future generations. And how embarrassed would you be, Matthew, if we're the generation of people who who start this cascading effect or this runaway problem that screws it up for the rest of humanity. Like, I do not want that to be what our generation is known for. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, yeah, um, I was working through, um, you know, really some new innovation, some brand new innovation that I thought could help with um, getting clean water to all of the people of the world in, in a passive way. And I had phenomenal human beings around me. So it was pretty cool because when I stepped away um, from my roles, I was, I was the principal investigator of three different programs at that time. And I was working heavily with university, public and private industry. Um, so when I left, there was way more of a ripple than I had anticipated. And I got a lot of reach out, you know, and, and people really were interested in what are you doing? Like, why would you leave this? You know? And I just, I just have, I just have to do this. This is just something I need to do. Um, and it's been really exciting for me because I've gotten just the most massive amount of support. Um, I have people from all different industries happy to help out. Right. I was like, Whoa, Whoa, I don't have anything formed yet. I can't pay anybody. Like don't quit your day jobs, please do what you're doing. But so many people were like, we want to be a part of this. Like let's work. I'll give you 10 hours of my week and like, let's figure out what we can do. And that's really how this whole Elon Musk challenge started 
um, we were looking at different types of new innovations, like what can we do in terms of water for people? And somebody was like, hey, have you seen this X Prize? And my grandfather had texted to me, a couple other people had, and I just hadn't opened it. Like I just hadn't looked at it. So it was really cool because we decided to look at it as a, as a group really. And we thought, okay. And they're like, I think this was made for us. Like, I really think we should take this on. Like, this is, this is important. And, oh gosh, at that point in time, it must've been between 10 and 15 of us all just volunteering or at me full time. Like I quit to, to make a difference. And, um, the rest of, I mean, and a lot of other cultural things that were going on, but, but primarily, you know, um, it was important that it was a good time for me to go make a difference. And additionally, I just, I knew, I knew that it was right. Like I slept so well that night, Matthew, you know, it was like this weight that was being taken off of my shoulders and, the support that came with that, I was like, this is what karma is. Like I have so much good karma built up and now all of these people are coming because they see this vision and they want to make a real difference. And it's so exciting because it's funny right now. I mean, we all have completely different backgrounds. There's 10 to 15 of us originally um, with our master's or our PhD in non-similar fields. And I mean, it is so funny, the types of ideas that you come up with when you're working in a think tank, you know, of people from massively different backgrounds, but then things would come up and we'd be like, okay, so we have no idea what circulating water on this scale or at this, you know, flow rate would be if we had, what if this is an ocean-based solution to, to, to carbon capture? Well, it doesn't have seem to affect any of the fish or the things that we know about, but there's like, I don't know, like photoplankton and bacteria and algae and stuff that we don't really understand. So it could be having an effect that we don't understand. You know what we need? We need a marine biologist. So I'll like get onto LinkedIn and, okay, how do I find a marine biologist to help us out? We we're kind of doing this like onesie twosie, grabbing people as we needed them and joining to the team. And it was slowly growing. And then we had a conversation that was like, this is a global problem. Anybody who, you don't have to have a PhD and you don't have to have a master's degree to be, come up with good ideas for how to help. And if you want to help, but you don't know how, you should also have the opportunity to be able to provide in some way, you know, feel like you're a part of this movement. So we decided, okay, I'm just going to post something on LinkedIn. And then anybody who we already know can join us and it'll be lots of fun. And we have this wonderful, I mean, just this beautiful community of individuals. And I cannot believe how many people have reached out to me, Matthew. It's been insane. I have a hundred people a day contacting me and I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I got this. <laughs> okay. Good thing. I've been program managing large teams <laughs> Wow. <laughs> because we got to figure some stuff out. Yeah. So it's been really exciting. There's, I think there's more than 50 of us on the team now. I mean, we're large, we're a big group. Um, and everybody is so talented in their particular fields. You would not believe how niche you can get into stuff. I mean, I had no idea. So originally I was like sequestration. I know about 
I know about scrubbing carbon dioxide, right? Like I understand the Sabatier process, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's massively different when you apply the, the sinks that are inherent and at the scale that we're talking about, you know, um, in terms of biosphere one or the earth. Yeah. And it's so cool the stuff that we're coming up with. I mean, it's just so cool. And so now we have all these people who've been doing carbon capture in these niches, right? They do like one specific type of direct, direct air capture or, okay, we're doing sequestration. I'm like, boom, this is super cool. I got somebody who is super excited to join us and they're wonderful. They bring great energy and they're an expert in sequestration. They're geologists. But then all of a sudden there's like, we're talking to more and more geologists and all of a sudden it's like, Oh my gosh, they all know completely different stuff. Like not their their specialties don't overlap. Like it's specific to a type of rock, right? Or a specific soil environment, or they're specific in like volcanism and basalts, or like this person is really good but only at like geothermal stuff, you know? And it's like, wow, we need all of these people. Like the conversation is humongous. And it's so cool the way we're innovating right now. Matthew, it really is like, okay, I don't know how you nerds pull that CO2 out of the air, but if you could get that to me in like liquid form at these temperatures, I'm going to do some really cool stuff with it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, okay, well I can get it like this, but then, you know, it, it, it's, missable right it's in water at this point yeah does any can anybody use it like this like what do we do with it so it really is formulating this system level approach right now that i think is gorgeous i honestly think it's more encompassing than the x prize i think only a subset of the stuff we're looking at developing really will fit within the x prize criteria for what's in scope but i i really think we're going to be a competitive force um in in the competition i hope I mean, there's a lot of people in it. Hundreds of thousands of people, I think, are in this. So, you know, I can I can be optimistic, but I just feel so strongly that the people on this team, they're so brilliant and they have that like collective thought in in that nobody is stuck to their ideas. You know, it's really like a here, what about this? And then we can mold and we can shape it together. And I'm just, I'm loving it so much. It's such a breath of fresh air. And I think we're between 10 and 20 different countries of participation right now. I mean, it's a global team. And it made me realize one of the things I think we're really screwing up with in the space industry. And that is really that nationalistic approach that we take to some of to some of our endeavors, because I did not realize the massive amounts of information and intellect that you you just can't get in certain places. Different places specialize and and grow and teach way different background information, and you can't get it all from the United States. You just can't. You can get so much beautiful information from the United States, but you're in doing that, you're filtering out so much beautiful I mean generational knowledge you know like this isn't just something somebody read in a book there's so much information about agricultural practices and biochars that we can learn from like the 1100s right and people have been doing this in their cultures for so long that we are talking about taking these processes and they're like why would you do that you know, it's because they have all of this in their minds. And it's, it's so beautiful to work with just this group. And, and honestly, 
let's say we completely screw the whole X pricing up, all right? We we're not competitive, we're not in the top 15 teams. That's okay because the network of individuals that we've created in this, I think these people could solve nearly anything. Like, I'm not kidding. I'm just so glad that the one thing that's brought us together, the X prize really has what it's what pulled us together originally. I think we're developing something even more expansive than the X prize. And I, I really believe that this will be a force to be reckoned with in terms of what we can, what challenges we can take a look at next, you know, in terms of, of, humanitarian crises that we need to address. I, we have many people who are doing their own little projects and they have the, the, all of us to back them up. You know, they're like, I'm writing a proposal to my country because of this hydroelectric dam issue on a river that's screwing up all of our ports, right? Our port cities. Okay, like let's address it. So it's so much more than just the X prize. And it's so wonderful because, you know, we we're choosing to be there and i think there's something about it that makes it really special that it's it's a choice that we're making as well right we have all of this knowledge and we want to put it towards something not just something to talk about like we want to do something yeah i mean <laughs> because that it's saying i mean it sounds like just listening here but the, the, just the way that you're talking that that you set out to 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 solve potentially the biggest problem in the world at the moment, which is carbon capture, we we know that that's huge. But you're <laughs> you've seemed to got halfway through the the process, and and then suddenly realised that you're actually solving another problem, which is how to how to generate solutions using like a a, a network of creative minds, international creative minds, and that 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 actually may be more even more impressive than carbon capture. <laughs> Yeah, I, these people are so impressive. I mean, seriously, hats off to every single one of them. And they all have it. You know, when you say like, oh, that person's got it. Like, these people have got it. You know, like these people are massively cool. And I don't understand how they haven't been you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand how there were resources just sitting there. Like it just, it blows my mind, you know, I'm like, these people want to help so much. Like, I'm so glad that we all have that. Like all of us had that same feeling. I think that's brought us together. And now we're, we're making our own environment to kind of be the outlet for that. Like, how do we do that in a way that helps us make progress as a species, because that's what's really, really important. And this ties into space so well, Matthew. I don't know how many books you've read uh, by a lot of the astronauts after they've come back from space travel, but it is like the most common theme that the borders go away for them, right? They're like, wow, like we are one, like it is a very borderless, you know, commodity style thing that they're all preaching. And if, if we could learn that lesson without having to go to space, right? Like, can we learn from their lesson without having to put every single human in space to learn it? That would be just phenomenal, right? It would just be, it would be, I think, the next giant step that it takes. We've done such a good job of handling the smaller problems and obstacles because we can as nations, especially the bigger nations. They have more resources. They can overcome this stuff. But when you start talking about global climate change, when you start talking about space travel and colonization, 
further and further into our solar systems or into deep space. You need the people. Like yeah. <laughs> You have to come together. You no longer have the resources alone as a single country. And to think of it in that way, it doesn't make sense to challenge your neighbors to race to this when nobody can achieve it on their own, when you could all work together and come up with something that works way faster for civilization. I mean, orders of magnitude sooner, right? I mean, imagine if we had all worked together to go into space instead of doing this nation by nation. I, I can't even, I can't even imagine where we would be. We probably already have a colony on Mars, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not sure, I but mean, this, this, I hypothesize it. Yeah. I mean, this theme comes up quite a, a lot in on the, on the podcast. And it's one that I love to explore is, is what's more powerful competition or collaboration. Mm-hmm. Particularly space is one, is, is a really obvious one to watch where you see, the Russians and the Americans in in competition, and then they're in collaboration, and then they're in competition, like they're moving back into competition again. And you think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because because competition can also spur innovation as well. And and absolutely, it can. But it's but it it sounds like when there's, I guess this is one of the good things about things like the X Prize, is that it encourages. It encourages collaboration rather than competition. And and is there in your mind, is there a reason why prize money kind of works like that rather oh, than granting? To, yeah. And to be honest, I think that $50 million, even for the first place, is a drop in the bucket for what it will take to build a full-scale system to address global climate change. Like, <laughs> I think it's a big enough number to get people to look. It's a big enough number for scientists who are working on completely different stuff, engineers, students, whatever it is. It's an inspiration. It's a it's a, something shiny to look at, to get people to switch their focus from whatever it was they were looking at before to just for a second look at this. Like, let's just all for a second take a look at this. And when you really get into it, you realize that the $50 million is, is very unlikely to make anybody on the team rich, right? Like you are, you're going to need to do a lot of fundraising outside of that $50 million in order to build whatever solution you're coming up with. Most likely I could be proven wrong. And I, I'm still in the infancy stages of, of that part of this, but that's what it's looking like, you know, from, from a preliminary out from the preliminary outset. But in terms of competition versus collaboration, I love this. And I've never thought through this in its entirety. So really take this as my first stab at it, Matthew. Um, but I think competition is beautiful for kind of bite-sized problems that many, many people could attack, right? So like if if you want to come up with the most creative idea, right, for something small that is achievable by by smaller groups, it makes so much sense to jump into that, you know, in, into that competition because you're going to generate lots of different ideas, right, to, to solve this one problem. And it's very likely that many of those ideas work. So you've now narrowed it down to whichever one worked the fastest or worked for the cheapest or whatever, mm. whatever your parameters or criteria are. But when you're talking about things that are difficult to surmount at a global scale. It has to be collaboration. Like it, there can be competition within the ideas that you collaborate on to move further, right? 
um, there's always there's always the necessity for putting all the ideas on the table. So if sometimes if collaborate, I mean, if competition is what is needed to pull those ideas out, then so be it. But I mean, if you want to address, I don't know, dark matter, does any, who, who knows about dark matter? Oh, if anybody says they're an expert on dark matter, I'm calling, <laughs> I don't think they are, right? We don't understand a lot of things. Time travel, right? We need all of the people. We need everybody's input on certain of these things. And global climate change is one of those. We did not screw up the planet because one person did something wrong once and we can just fix whatever they did wrong. We have been systemically screwing up in a multitude of ways over, you know, the last many decades. And that is what has caused the problem. And it's going to take a system level solution. It's going to take a global approach. It's going to take all of the people to come together and try to fix it so that we haven't screwed it up for everybody else that comes down the line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I was formulating a little thing as you were saying, as you were saying that, 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 competitions work when you've got a finishing line don't they where 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 it's like but global problems like 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 uh, too much carbon in the atmosphere doesn't have a finishing line it's a kind of ongoing problem and the same with oh it's gonna take a long time and even in the process of doing this you're still going to have pollutants that are coming out right and we're we're looking at right a lot of people talk about co2 but you also have to talk about methane methane is is worse than co2 is right for the problems that we're facing and over time actually i believe break down into co2 so it's this it's this do we address do, what if we just stopped all of our pollution right now? Do we still have a problem? Maybe. It depends on who you talk to, you know, yeah. that yes. <laughs> okay. So do we address the problem over here of making it so that we're polluting less right now? Or do we address the problem over here where we've already made a mess of the environment and we need to figure it out? And this was really cool. I really love this analogy. I spoke was talking to a woman about how difficult it is to pull the carbon out once it's already in the air, right? Because the partial pressure, the percentage of the carbon in the air is, is reduced. At the point sources, like in a factory or in a flue, in a smokestack, you have much more carbon in a smaller area. So it's actually easier to pull it out. But when you're talking about it already being released into the environment, it's much more difficult. And um, the analogy that got brought up in that conversation was it's like taking a drop of ink and dropping it into a swimming pool, giving it some time to swirl around, and then asking us to pull the ink out, right? And that's what we've done to ourselves because we're so particularly sensitive, not only as people. People are very particular in in terms of CO2 buildup. We don't like that. In fact, when you're breathing, you know that, we know when you're swimming and you've been under the water a little too long, but you got to get to the opening and you get that like, feeling like you really need to breathe like you want to inhale but you know you'll bring in that water that feeling is very is very unlikely that it's from a lack of oxygen you actually have oxygen that you're breathing out in you in your exhale it's from the buildup of co2 that it's forcing you to want to breathe like that so we are very you know we're particular about it 
but the environment is also particular about it and way less particular than us. It has sinks built in. It can handle tons more CO2, but we've screwed that up. We've used all of those, you know, we've smushed the CO2 and the carbon and the methane and everything else into all of the places that it can handle. And now we've pushed it past the point, you know, where we can't ignore it anymore. Right. And I don't, I don't believe it's a runaway effect right now. I don't, I'm not in that. I'm not on that train, but I do believe that I'm not interested in figuring out where that point is (laughs) because if we've figured it out, we've probably gone way too far. So let's just, you know, so let me, we can now. So let me ask you a question since you've started working on this in earnest do you think that, that that carbon capture rather than sort of carbon control, do you think carbon capture r- really genuinely is the solution? I think that there isn't a solution. I think I think we need to combine novel solutions that exist in the realm of carbon capture. Yes, I do think that direct air capture technologies are important and need to happen. I also think we need ocean-based solutions for capture and that needs to happen. I also believe that we need to figure out ways to stop putting as much of it into the environment into the first place, right? And then you have the discussion on utilization versus sequestration or storage. That's a big thing. I had no idea what the right approach was when I started this, but the more that I've looked into this, the more I realized, I think we should utilize as much as we can from what we've got. And it doesn't hurt to, and there's going to be so much more. There's so much excess. We have to store it and we have to figure out how to store it in a way that's not effective to the environment. We can't do something that causes more problems than we started with, right? But the carbon really started under the ground. It's been under there for millions of years. So there has to be an effective way of putting it back where it started that isn't catastrophic, right? It's how do we undo what we've done? It started in the form of, you know, oil. It really, we pulled it out in the form of oil. That's what we've done. And figuring out how to get that carbon back where it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's if we're talking about hundreds of years of of the energy that it's given us, it, it, it's almost it's it's you suddenly then realise that the enormity of the problem, don't you? That, that it's like it's going to take a similar sort of energy and resources to get it back down there. I, it does. I, it's going to take a lot. Yeah, in my simplistic brain, I always think, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if you could turn all the carbon in the atmosphere into into nice sheets of graphene? <laughs> So there's a lot of people we've talked to that are like, we just want graphene. Yeah, that's what we want from all of this. So you're not alone in that, Matthew. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was me being mad. So I wondered Maybe around. if we could like pull it down to earth first and then turn it into graphene. It'd be pretty weird yeah. if we just turned it into graphene in, in, in the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that might be quite dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Is that cloudy with a chance of meatballs, a graphene style? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I mean that it was a really brave thing to do. But I mean, is is I I guess I mean I, I hear this as well because we obviously interview a lot of uh, engineers that really like engineers at heart love uh-huh. cha- love challenges, and that yeah. and that's it. You, you you just want the challenge rather than anything else. Yeah, it's really hard to 
it's really hard to get away from that. I think it becomes, like I said, I think it really is an addiction at some point, like innovation becomes an addiction. Um, you see these problems and you, it's a thrill in figuring out what the answer is. It's a thrill in bringing it from your head into a real life product. And it's a thrill of, of seeing other people utilizing it. And it's a thrill to see the end result of it being utilized. So Maybe it's a healthy addiction. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure. But I mean, I'm addicted to water, and that's probably a pretty healthy addiction. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, not, it's not bad, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. so so if people wanted to get in, I mean, obviously, this is it's very inspirational. I'm sitting here thinking, I, I want to join your team. So, what, what's please the, do. What, what's the what's the best <laughs> what's the best way for people to do that? How, how would you go about it? Uh, so I think I'm the most communicative uh, through LinkedIn. I think that is the best way to get a hold of me. But um, also, um, we have a website. It's so crappy right now. So <laughs> give me some time to build it up. It's been in existence for like a couple of weeks. But there is a button on there that allows you to to get in contact with me as well. It says like a join the team button. And that, that directly uh, interfaces with me uh, and our outreach group. So... Um, that is yumme. That's Y-U-M-M-E-T dot com. So what? it will slowly, it'll slowly look more impressive. You give me some time. Uh, where, where, where did that name come from? Where does the yumme name come from? Oh, that's, why does anybody ask that? Okay, but I'll tell you. <laughs> so, um, okay, originally I had this idea and I'm actually working through patenting it right now, but I'm finding ways I think that will help with a lot of our food problems that we're seeing. And the end product of what I wanted to be able to give to people who don't have access to good nutrients is this product that typically, I think, kind of like the pulling water out of the feces idea is not a very appetizing thought for very many people. Likewise, I'm working through a way of doing a lot of stuff with nutrient cycle and making sure that nutrients is provided to a lot of people who don't have access to that right now. So in that, in the process of trying to figure out what I wanted to really, I wanted a name that was associated with that, that would sound appetizing. And so I thought like, yummy you know like and and I looked it up and I liked it because I was like okay it's like a, a French sophisticated style of yummy and I can never find a url that is only six letters long so I'm so happy to have that too so I was so happy that yummy y-u-m-m-e-t was available so yeah it just fit, fit and felt so right I mean I sat on that for a couple of weeks figuring out what I really wanted to call you know this and then it just kind of became, a, okay, we're also looking at water and we want to, we want the water kind of fits in this, you know, it's this celestial and terrestrial sustainability. I thought they were going to be separated ideas at first. So Yamne was really going to be focused, you know, just on getting nutrients and water, you know, that's what it was going to be. Um, to people of the earth. And then um, really this carbon capture stuff started and we're like, but it fits so well within what we're trying to do, right? It, it is that taking our celestial sustainability and, and applying it to, to the terrestrial. So we're like, okay. So I think that's kind of how it's evolved over time. And we make jokes, you know, it's like, well, when we breathe, we want it to be yummy. <laughs> and when we drink water, we want it to be Yummy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing you I can imagine in yeah, like a sci-fi film. Like uh, yeah, 
like a, almost like a Philip K. Dick thing where people are saying that, yeah, the water is yummy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I like you're it. doing it so much better. Yeah. Can you be the voice if I ever pull a video together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> English voice for hire. English evil voice for hire. Yeah. Oh, no. I think that's uh, the most it, accepted voice, right? Yeah. Around. Everybody loves an English voice. Everybody does. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Th- thanks, thank you, Hollywood. That's all. I- <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true for a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 it's it's an awesomely inspiring story, and you're 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 an absolutely fantastic person to have on the podcast. I, I, you're, 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 <laughs> you. it, it's it's like you're, you're clearly an, a, a huge talent. So uh, I, I, I did post in our little um, in in our very small communication on LinkedIn a couple of frivolous questions that I might ask you. Is there someone from the past? They don't necessarily have to be dead, but they usually are. Someone from the past, a, a, a inspiration to you that you would love to bring back from the past and say, look at what I'm doing. This is this is my work. What do you think? Oh, my gosh. From the past past. From the past um, past. Yeah, the past past. I'm so bad at history. I feel like I'm going to flunk this question. But... <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, the people that I think I would be most interested in talking to, I don't know their names right now. I don't know who this specific person is, but I know the people that if I could like click a button and I could talk to somebody who had these specific knowledge or this specific skill that I would want to showcase what I'm doing to, I think I could do that. I think I want to talk to some of the original, I don't know. As Techians, I think actually, I, I don't know the exact per, the exact as Techian that I'd be interested in, or the Incans. Man, these people came up with some of the most brilliant ideas, and what they did, the way that they lived within their cultures, was so symbiotic to the world around them, and. We think of these as, as as old school cultures, right? That didn't have that, that didn't have the sort of commodities that we have. But we're so wrong in our understanding. I've been working with um, a lot of archaeologists who have a ton of knowledge about things that you know used to be. And originally, some of these cultures actually moved into uh, the South American areas and were cast out. Right? They were like okay, we're actually kind of crowded here. And we don't think about that. Like we think about long, long times ago as being sparse populations, you know, not having a lot of the same problems that we have now, but they really were cast out and given some of the worst land to survive off of. And they were given this like dirty, marshy land and they didn't didn't have access to a lot of the farming and agricultural land that others had. And It's so inspirational because even back then, right, thousands of years ago, they're able to take, they made floating farms, essentially, and they were able to create biochars out of this stuff to make the land that they did have access to extremely fertile. And all of a sudden, they just had this abundance of resources, and they became eventually the most powerful, you know, I don't know if it's a group or, yeah, yeah. that were was around then. And, and they did it in ways that are still beneficial 
to the agriculture and the soil today. They did things that long ago that we are still benefiting from. I want to talk to the people who know how to make something that was beneficial for them then also beneficial for us now because we have gotten way too deep into this doing things that are beneficial for us now at the expense of the people in the future. So I would love to talk to some of the game changers in those cultures. Yeah, I mean, that that, it's such a great point because there must have been the the Isaac Newtons of their their cultures. I mean, yeah, I love that. The one that I find really fascinating on that one is from that part of the world is the potato. A poisonous plant that they somehow realised if you took it up to the top of the mountain and and it got it all iced up and then stamped on it, the the ice would take the poison out of it and you could now eat the potato. Oh, that's so cool. And you go, go, and then eventually, obviously, they bred the poison out of the potato over time until they have, you know, eatable potatoes that we all eat now. And you think, God, it's just, it's insane, isn't it? That, that those kind of innovations and you go, yeah, oh my I'm God. totally with you on that. That's really cool. That's really cool. I think that's one of the best answers I've ever had. That's, see, oh, you, did, well, you <laughs> didn't even need prep. Uh, and, okay, good. <laughs> now, and the other one is that we, ha- we have a, um, space, a space song playlist that we have. Uh, and it's for, so if you've got a space song, that you associate, you know, that you occasionally put on and you associate with space. Is there anything that you've got that you could put on our space song playlist? You're not allowed David Bowie because everyone has that. But, but yeah. Oh, yeah, everybody has that one. You can't get around that. You that is for sure there. Yeah. Do, do you have like a, a theme? Like, do you have a genre? You could, I don't no, 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 no. <laughs> we've, we've got heavy metal. We've got classical. We've got pop. We've got everything on there. No, 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 no genre, no theme other than space. Because I actually have a, an entire space playlist that I'd be very happy to share with oh you. Oh, my God. Well, there we go. Just share, just share your space playlist. Yeah, <laughs> so, I have a Spotify space playlist. What, what's, the so. first, what's the first track on there? I have no idea. I put it on shuffle every time. I don't even know what order oh. they're in. I'm the worst DJ in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that should be the name of the playlist. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot. I'll be so happy to send that to you. Oh, my God. I that, That's brilliant. Yeah. My, I, yeah, I love that. I'll send that to you through your LinkedIn. Oh, brilliant. That's awesome. Okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, I've had, I've, I've had a, a big hour of your time, so you're obviously a very busy person. So <laughs> dealing with 100 people, 100 people like me come back to you every day so <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to add the thing i i think would be if you want to join our team matthew you're absolutely more than welcome and we have so many experts on the team but you do not have to be an expert to join this team we have high schoolers who you know who have a passion for ai and machine learning and just really really want to work with some of our experts who've done some of the coolest stuff in the industry in ml and ai type stuff you know we have people in africa interested in space who want to collaborate with people who've been or work at nasa you know like we're really we really are a, it takes all hands group so please join well yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's the opportunity to save the planet really <laughs> so, yeah. yeah and yeah. i think we will so oh, fab well, uh, well that's made me happy <laughs> good, good, <laughs> someone good. needs to save the planet but thank yeah. you very much well 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 thanks very much that's absolutely awesome and thank you the interplanetary podcast is alive there we go there we go harriet 
there is there was my interview with Brittany. What you what you what what are you up to at the moment, Harriet? Have you well, have you got a busy week? Oh gosh, well actually, I'm heading to the Reinventing Space Conference next week. Of course, um, yeah. With the uh, British Interplanetary Society, um, yeah, that's going to be interesting. In First fact, well, in yes, person. What, what are the, what what are the dates and where is it? Um, oh, let me. It might not be too late for people to join, might it? I don't know. It's well, it's Monday, Monday through Wednesday, so twenty eighth to to the thirtieth of June. Um, and I think there's going to be an online virtual option as well, so if people want to okay. follow along at home. So if people uh, people listen to this first thing in the morning. They might be able to get their act together and and uh, and get online. Yeah, you never know. Or, or, Worst case, they can follow it on Twitter. Yeah, or, or or people may have booked it and forgotten about it. That which might be my case actually. I can't remember <laughs> what I have or not. Oh, yeah, are you I've coming been, along? I forgot. I don't. To I, I don't think I am. I'm just. I'm. I'm oh. so maxed out with work, and I'm not. The, the most annoying thing is I, I. I can't take holidays during term time at the moment. There's a sort mm. of moratorium on it. Very oh. dull. It's very dull. dull. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, not. Um, that's it. That's it. Thanks very much, Harriet, for for shooting the breeze about about Chinese space stations. Well, I learned a, a random lot. Chinese space station episode. Well, it's not that random. I suppose it's quite big news, isn't it, at the moment? I'd, I'd say topical. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's topical. all right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But, well, no, it's been a pleasure as always, and um, yeah, let's talk space soon. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I've got to go and pick my curry up now. I've got one minute to get down the curry place to pick it up. How exciting! Oh, you'll have to run. <laughs> Think of it as astronaut training. Yeah, yeah, I'm considering astronaut training. But well, that's it. Bye, guys, my cats.